Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. How are you well? Good morning. Is it feeling a little more crowded lately? Is it feeling a little? Who's, who's yelling at me? Is that Terry? God, we, who would have guessed Terry would be yelling at me from the yeah, seats? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Like, how, how, how close are we to having a second service? How many people would like to have a second service? Raise your hand. Keep them up. Keep them up. If you guys could pass out the volunteer cards to everybody. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, doing two services, I love. We did two services for uh, Christmas, Christmas Eve this, this year. And I forgot how much fun it is to have two different services, two different groups of people coming and going. The parking lot's full. The cafe is crowded. And it's just a lot of fun. And yet, it's a lot of work. So we are believing that God will lead us to two services when um, time is right, and he'll bring all the volunteers that we need to do all of that. So I'm so thankful for that. And also when a room is full like this, it just reminds me there's a lot of uh, guests coming, first-time guests. I, I spoke to a young lady this morning, um, came for the first time last week, decided to come back this week, which just means she likes us. I can't believe it. And I just tell people like that, just stick around long enough. We'll make you mad at some point. I'm sure we will. <laughs> But we're so glad that you've come. Um, uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the leaders here at the church, and I want to uh, read um, some notes that I took this week to talk about this passage that KK read for us. To do so, we have to have a, a little bit of a brief recap of, of where we've been so far. So we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, and if you come to Renaissance, you know that we love to just take books of the Bible and just work through them sort of line by line, verse by verse. And so we started a study in the book of Luke last year, and I mentioned this many times before, but if we continue, you know, through this year, we should go into 2025, and then in 2026, we'll finish the book of Luke at some point. And I suspect many of you won't be around by then. I don't know. <laughs> but we're just going through slowly, and my heart in this whole thing is just that we would just gain an overall perspective of what uh, Luke is writing to um, Theophilus, this Christian in the first century. And in reading his words, we uh, grow in our understanding and knowledge of who God is too. Anyways, so what we've studied so far is, is Luke, the author of Luke's gospel, he's been leading the reader into this sort of tension of answering the question, who is Jesus? And so a couple chapters back, we saw that the Jesus' own disciples um, began to question in their mind, who is this man that commands even the wind and the waves and it obeys him? Like, who is Jesus? And then um, we see uh, the fame of Jesus through the miraculous works that he's doing spread throughout the countryside. And this query of who Jesus is has even reached to the the, the level of authority such as King Herod, we learned a couple weeks ago that King Herod wondered as well who Jesus was. And then Jesus, a couple weeks ago as well, asked his disciples just pointedly, he's like, who are the crowds saying that I am? What are the crowds saying about me? 
And Luke is leading us, the reader, into this question, who is Jesus? And then Jesus then asks his disciples the question that I would like to ask all of you this morning. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? This is the question that Jesus asks them. And the disciples all gave varied answers, and all of them were incorrect, except for one. One person, Peter, gave the correct answer, and he said these words, you are the Christ. And so I want to pick up on something that we rushed over last week. First, note this. First, note this, that Peter was not the only one to answer the question. Like all of them answered the question. Today, many people have an answer for who Jesus is, but oftentimes they too, like the disciples, are wrong. And they are wrong, not because they're answering the question through, um, they're wrong rather, because they're answering the question not from a place of faith. They're answering the question from intellectualism or history or hearsay. But to truly answer the question, who is Jesus correctly, you have to have Faith. And faith, we know from the Bible, comes from God. And it comes through the person that we call the Holy Spirit. Now we can see this a little more clearly in uh, Matthew's gospel. Matthew tells the story of Jesus' biography as well, his birth and his ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. But Matthew um, tells the story where the disciples respond to Jesus' question by asking, uh, when Jesus says, who do the crowd say that I am? Some of them said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, brought back to life. Some people say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus follows up to them and says, well, aside, set aside all the opinions of other people. Set aside what everyone else says Jesus is. And you tell me who you think I am. And it says, Matthew records what happens next. Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. And, G- and Jesus says, well, uh, and Peter says, you are the Christ. Okay, and then Jesus answers Peter. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which is just an Old Testament way or a Bible way of saying uh, Peter, long story. <laughs> just another name for Peter. But he says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? But my father who is in heaven has done this. And, and Jesus here clar- clarifies the correct answer from Peter. It did not come from his intellect. It did not come from anyone else's opinion about Jesus. Are you seeing this? It came, he has the correct answer about who Jesus is because it came from God himself. God gave him the answer to who Jesus is. And the apostle Paul confirms elsewhere in the New Testament that the true life-giving response to the question of Jesus' identity only comes from him. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this, Therefore I want you, this is Paul writing to Christians, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says this. He never says, Jesus is accursed. And then he says this, and this is what I want to focus on. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And here we see that when it comes to the person of Jesus, A person can only have a true understanding of who Jesus is by the work of God in their life. If we could just pause for a moment, that could could free a lot of us who are struggling to understand who is Jesus, not just who he is like historically or whatever, but, but who he is to us individually. And so many of us are striving to figure that out. And I'm here to tell you that we can just rest in trusting God is going to reveal who he is for you. He's going to show you who his son is. A theologian, Bob Wilkin, gives some explanation of what Paul is arguing here. He says, first, 
He's not saying that an unbeliever can't physically speak the words, Jesus is Lord. So when, when Paul says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, he, he's, I think we can all agree that people can actually say the words and not be a believer. Would you agree? Like I could have everyone in the room say Jesus is Lord and we would all do that. And, not, and God's not gonna seal some of our lips closed with like a supernatural super glue. <laughs> like we can say the words. All we need is a breath and some vocal cords and a mouth to make the words come out. That's it. He's not saying that they can't physically say the words. We know that. And so this reality has led some people to believe that they, they think Paul is just saying, well, then no one can have a sincere profession of faith as Jesus is Lord. They argue that while anyone can say the words Jesus is Lord, then only a believer could say it with sincerity. It makes sense to us a little bit, doesn't it? I think it's also wrong. <laughs> Bob Wilkin continues. He says, this does not seem to be what Paul is saying because experience again tells us that there are many moral and religious unbelievers who are capable of sincerely saying, and I would argue believing that Jesus is Lord, but they do not live in such a way that it proves that statement trustworthy in their lives. Think about it. Some of them are Christians in name only. Not, they do not change their lives to the Lordship of Christ in any way. They are quote-unquote Christian because their family has been Christian. They are quote-unquote Christian because they occasionally attend church and they keep their membership current at the local church. And, and we all know people who say Jesus is Lord and probably, probably believe the statement is true, but it is not true for them. Let that sit in the room. So if this verse isn't saying that unbelievers are incapable of saying it with their lips or sincerely saying Jesus is Lord, then what is Paul saying? It's important to note that Paul does not say that no one can say Jesus is Lord unless he is born again. And this is a word that we use in the church to describe the born again experience by faith that we become new creatures as Christ has done this miraculous thing in our lives, given us the power of the Holy Spirit and makes us new. We believe that happens to us. It's, we're evangelicals. That's what we believe. There's a born again experience for us. But Paul's not even saying that you have to be born again to say these words. Ultimately, he's saying... No one can say the phrase, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. It, it most naturally means that whenever someone sincerely acknowledges Jesus' Lordship, wait for this, it is the result of the work of God in their lives. That's all it is. That's all he's saying. And so whatever, wherever we are on our journey with God, and when, when our minds start to open up to this reality that God might have something more for us, and the way into the more for us is through his son, Jesus Christ, when that is happening, it is God himself who's working on your behalf to make that happen. And so when you say Jesus is Lord, when you begin to believe it in your life, it's because God is seeing you and is doing something in you. It's a mistake of the first order. <laughs> I love how he writes that. It is a mistake of the first order to think that the Holy Spirit can only work in the lives of believers. If that were true, no one could ever be saved. Pause, because this wrecked me as a young Christian. 
I thought the Holy Spirit was given to us when we became Christians, and it's only the Christians who experience the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have to believe that's not true. If we were to pull the room around here, how many people would look back on their life before they became a Christian, and looking back now, you can see the hand of God in your life, directing, changing, helping, working in your life, and wait for it, and you weren't even a believer in him yet. And yet God is working in your life. I remember I was in college going through a particularly rough time. If you've been around Renaissance at all, you know that I had an incredibly difficult college experience because of anxiety and drinking and all kinds of this stuff, right? I wasn't a Christian. And um, I remember one particular summer I was home for break and a friend of mine who was also going through a really hard time um, thought it best to um, end his life. And so he um, took a bunch of whatever, right? So I get the call. So-and-so is in the hospital. He tried to take his life. And I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay. So I go to outside to clear my head, as most people with anxiety do, <laughs> right? Get some cold air on the face, try to, you know, come back into my body for a moment. And I'm taking a walk in my neighborhood and cloudy, dreary day, right, whatever. Um, and I'm just thinking about the situation. And I'm not kidding you. As sure, sure as I'm standing here, like the, the clouds parted on the road in front of me. Sunbeam came down in the steps in front of me, and I heard a voice in, in my heart or in my head or whatever. I didn't hear a voice, but I heard everything is going to be just fine. I don't know what that means, right? I just know now, looking back, the Lord was leading me into a place of trust and belief in him. I was an agnostic atheist, probably, and I did not believe in God. I thought it was a crutch that people used to just Put some meaning onto life. Is this resonating with anyone? Not a believer, and I believe God was working in my life. And how many of us would agree that God has done something like that for you even before you're a Christian? Of course. So God works in our lives even when we're not believers, and that's important for us. And that's the takeaway. He works in people's lives. And here's the best part. So it means that God makes a choice. Like, he chooses. No one forces God's hand, Right? <laughs> right? No one forces God's hand. He makes a choice in both believers and the unbelievers' lives. He is that involved, he cares that much, and he does not sit on some heavenly throne somewhere up above simply watching humanity hum along as mere entertainment, whether in delight or disgust. As much as the world around us is educating us about the right, quote-unquote, way of living, God is also active in teaching us. And he uses his spirit to reveal the truth to us and to teach us the way of abundant life. Is this resonating with anyone? So now we get to the part of the story where Jesus <laughs> responds to Peter, right? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and he says, flesh and blood is not revealed as you, but my Father in heaven. And now we pick up where we are in chapter 9, verse 21. And then Jesus, <laughs> typical Jesus, bizarro fashion, says these words, verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one about this. Has anyone ever read this and thought that was the weirdest thing? All right. I'm going to stop asking questions if you're not going to answer the questions. <laughs> Come on. 
Yes, it is strange. Why would he, God send his son, Jesus, to the earth so that he could be known and famous and be renowned and people would come to faith in him? And yet when people are starting to figure it out by God, showing them, he goes, shh, don't say anything. What a strange response. Jesus is the son of God. Come to earth in the flesh. God is now with his people. We celebrate it every year at Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. We would all think this should be the lead in every news story and conversation we have with all the people that we know, but Jesus shuts it down. Jesus commands them. And the word command here carries weight like it's ordered from a military officer. He commands them, don't say anything. Why? Commentator Robert Stein states that the command for silence was given not because Peter confession, Peter's confession was false, but precisely because it was true. The confession was not inappropriate, but its proclamation was dangerous. And up to now, the Jewish people saw Jesus primarily as a healer, a potential deliverer. We didn't know he's maybe a prophet. And, and the apostles began preaching. If they began to preach that he was the Messiah, it would cause a popular uprising against Rome. And Jesus, he has rejected such a nationalistic conception of his messiahship. And he's done so all through his ministry. If you read the words of Jesus, he's constantly pushing back against that idea. The public proclamation of Jesus as the Christ would have brought an immediate confrontation between Jesus and Rome and the authorities. And in John's gospel, when Jesus fed the, the 5,000, if you guys remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago with five fish and, or five loaves and two fish, anyone? Five loaves, two fish, and he does all of that. It says that when Jesus perceived that the people were about to come and take him by force and make him king, so what does Jesus do? He goes deuces and walks away from them, <laughs> leaves them, leaves them and goes by himself onto a mountainside. Jesus, hear me, had not come to take on a political system to correct the world's misdirected rudder. He had an even greater goal, which he then lays out in the next verse. Verse 22, he says this, the son of man must suffer. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. Here, now we see in Luke's gospel, Jesus speak clearly and directly. Previously, he'd only spoken about his death with figurative flair, saying things like, well, there'll come a day when the bridegroom is taken away from you, and then you can fast. What? What are you talking about? I'm not going to a wedding. What are you talking about? Or there'll come a day when the temple will be destroyed in three days. I'll rebuild it. I don't care. What's it got to do with you? Like, what does all this mean? And of course, those things, if you know the scripture, it means it's pointing to a reality that Jesus is doing. Metaphorically, something's happening. But here, he speaks directly. The literal precision. He speaks now with a literal precision of a courtroom stenographer. He simply states the facts that will come to unfold before them. And he says these words. He will suffer. And although the Greek word translated here implies suffering to the point of death, we also read in the scripture the various other ways that Jesus suffered. 
that he endured emotional trauma as those closest to him abandoned him in his time of need. One of his chosen disciples was stealing money from the treasury and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. You know, if you know that whole story. Those closest to him betrayed him. He suffered humiliation in his crucifixion. But Jesus suffered. And, and Jesus uses this language. And he says, I must suffer. Like, this is the way for me. He says he will be rejected. The triune leadership of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, they were all supposed to lead God's people with compassion towards holiness and union with God. And as Jesus proclaimed such, such a way, because he was coming to fulfill that and to show them this is the way, follow me here, God's people rejected him. They called him a false teacher and a heretic. The Bible says Jesus was there at the beginning of creation when the universe explodes into existence and the very first time rain ever fell on the earth, Jesus was there. And then the political system that had been set up, set up around God's people at this time, they also rejected him with a brush off and a ceremonial washing of the hands. And as the people gathered together, the ones that he had called his own, they cried out in rejection of him as they chanted, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he continues to say that, that he's going to be killed. Jesus was scourged and nailed to a cross. Scourging was just a beating designed to not only inflict pain and torture, but it was supposed to speed up the crucifixion process which is just so painful. Our, our word, if you didn't know this, excruciating, it, it means out of the cross. Comes from the cross. And so crucifixion was the most painful death a person could endure. We had to create a word to describe it. <laughs> and so they would scourge a person before they would nail them to the cross and it was supposed to speed up their death. How compassionate of them, would you agree? And it says Jesus did die on a cross. Between two common criminals, the Son of God fell slack with death, and only the nails driven by the executioner held him upright. His life left him. And just before he took his final breath, he proclaimed the atoning work of God through the sacrifice of himself, the only begotten Son was complete. And these three words echoed through the valley from that hill on Calvary. And when Jesus said these words, it is finished. But how does a dead body thrown in an empty tomb accomplish anything? How can a sacrifice of universal proportions accomplish its goal as decay and rot consume the flesh of God's son? The truth is it can't which is why Jesus then says, not only will he suffer and be rejected and killed, <laughs> if you make any noise today, it comes now. When I say the next line, like if you have breath in you, you can like say something. Ready? Ready? Not only will he 
He must suffer and be rejected and be killed, but he said he will raise from the dead. Stop. It's so patronizing when you guys do that. No, no I, I ask for applause because sometimes I think we have um, domesticated this message so much. It's become so familiar to us that you forget the power that's in it. That Christ has been raised from the dead. That everything God had sent his son to accomplish was accomplished. It is finished. They bury him in a grave. And on the third day, he's raised back to life. It just proves that the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to give in his own body was accepted by God the Father. And because he had never sinned, because death had no claim on him, the grave spit him out as God raised him back to life and has secured for us salvation. And so we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, which is coming up in about six or eight weeks. Oh my gosh, that's so fast. I'm nervous. I haven't written a sermon or nothing. I'm not even ready for it. We remember when the women went to the tomb to pay their last respects and they found the tomb open and empty. Jesus had left. He is alive. Amen. And he eventually reunites with the disciples and wait for it. And the disciples are dumbfounded and yet overjoyed. Jesus predicts everything that's going to happen. He says it all to them, lists all four of those things that are going to happen. He predicts them all, and he uses the word must to describe the impossibility of another option. Even despite Peter's objection and refusal to believe it, there is no other way for God to correct the issue of sin in the world. There was no way to recreate humanity into what he originally designed it to be. Jesus is the way. And there is no other way for us to receive it. We are bound by the actions of Christ. His work on the cross is our work on the cross. His work for redemption is our work for redemption. His sacrifice for the penalty of sin, which is death, is our sacrifice for sin. His resurrection from the dead is our resurrection. And we no longer have death's shadow tormenting us. We no longer have its shadow tormenting us and, and we've been set free We've been set free from sin, free from death, free from living a life unbefitting of the heirs of a king. Say amen. amen. And we are rich beyond any measure that this world could ever throw at it. So do not let this world lie to you. Don't let social media look down on you. If you are a Christian, if you believe by faith and can say that Jesus is Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have become victorious. This life cannot defeat you. It cannot destroy you. Eternity is your home and your inheritance. Praise Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm getting ready to start now. It, I'm telling you, this goes much better for all of us if you're just a little more vocal to start. I'm just, are you here now? Okay, let's get started, shall we? Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the leaders here at the church. 
No, this is my, actually says the words, final thought. This is my final thought. I'll give it to you now. When Jesus predicts his death, it actually tells us two truths. And I need you to see these because these two truths intersect in a way that will profoundly change and shape your life. First, Jesus' life was not taken from him. It was not taken from him, stolen from him. They didn't sneak up behind him. It was completely forethought when he predicts his death. When he says all those things are about to happen, he knows what's going to happen. It tells us that he willingly laid down his life. This, in fact, was a voluntary act of his free will. He was not crucified because he could not escape it. He did not become crucified because he was powerless to crush his enemies who came for him. No. That is not the point of the story that Luke is teaching us here. Not only did Jesus know that he was going to die at the hands of these religious leaders, but he told others about it before it happened. He wanted them to see that he was doing this on purpose. Second, second truth. Oftentimes people can't understand, quote unquote, what God is doing. Even though Jesus had told all of the disciples this fact, those things are going to happen to me. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be ridiculed, mocked, or whatever. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to raise from the dead. Even though he did all of those things, they were still astonished and confounded when his death actually occurred. The disciples were also in disbelief when Jesus had raised from the dead. Peter and John ran to the tomb to see it for themselves because they don't trust no women, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Wrong church. But they run to the tomb. It's like, you, you, you made a mistake, surely. Let us go see for ourselves. And they run to the tomb because they what? Don't believe it. Thomas infamously said, unless I see the marks in his hands and put my, my hand into his side where his wound was, I will never believe. And Jesus said, this is going to happen. Jesus had previously told them all, including the doubter, that he would raise from the dead. So why didn't Thomas and the others believe it? Why don't we believe God sometimes? Why don't we believe the things that he says? Like why when we stand here and we worship and we proclaim these almost like prophetic words over our body that God is doing something, that he's uniting us, that he's bringing us into a place of beholding beauty and goodness, all these things that we believe God is bringing us into for this year, why don't we believe it too? J.C. Ryle says this, it's oftentimes because of prejudice. It was prejudice from man that God can only do what man thinks is right. What man thinks should happen. That God can only do what man thinks is appropriate. Whatever man thinks is important, that's the things God should do. And to the disciples, the overthrow of Rome was primary for them. The freedom of Israel from foreign occupiers was the top of their list. Dying at the hands of religious leaders was not important to them. And neither was raising from the dead. <laughs> if that was really a thing, they're probably thinking. So even though God, Jesus, said he was going to do it, they didn't believe it because they didn't think it appropriate. So these two truths intersect for us into a powerful revelation of our God. First, he willingly acts in ways to change our perception about him. 
Left on our own, we are but lost sojourners in life. We don't even understand where we are going, let alone how to get there. This is why the Bible repeatedly uses language, saying things that we are like blind people who need a guide and need to see. We are sheep that need shepherded. We are clay that needs a potter's hand to shape. We are lost, bankrupt, empty without him. The Bible even uses one of my favorites. He, he likens us to impure gold. It's precious and beautiful. It just needs refined. It just needs heated up. Who wants some heat? <laughs> you say that. Come on, Jesus, let's go. He, he, we have things in us, impurities inside of us, lack of faith, doubt, sorrow, hidden sin, addictions, you name your stuff, you got all kinds of impurities in the gold set before us. And God brings the heat to us so that, that those things can rise to the top and his hand can wipe it off. But he willingly works in the lives of his people. All humanity, we know this, has a deficiency that God desires to change. The Bible calls it sin and it's not, and if it's not dealt with, it will destroy everything. It operates like King Midas in an alternate upside-down world, bringing death and destruction instead of prosperity to everything it touches. Jesus is the true king who's come to restore God's great creation and claim it back from the enemy who stole it. And he tells his disciples that this act will cost him his life. But they struggle to understand it. They struggle to believe that God would be so involved in their lives that he would do that for them. J.C. Sproul sums it up. He says this, if they are honest to admit it, they, they don't want their Messiah to be a glorious king who comes in power to vanquish their enemies. They want something other. They don't want a king to suffer, but Jesus must suffer and be put to death. And this, unfortunately, is a foreign concept to us that we are oftentimes indoctrinated into believing here in America. Is that sometimes only the... The victors come out on top because they've beaten everybody else down. And Jesus just teaches a different way for us. That sometimes the way to victory is through suffering. Sometimes the way to breakthrough is, is re relinquishing the control and authority or power that you think you have over a situation. You can fight it if you want to. I mean, heck, you've been fighting it for 20 years now, haven't you? How's that working for you? The way of surrender is the way through. Jesus models this for us. Sometimes even those of us who claim to be Christian <laughs> believe that a, a battle must be waged and only the strong will endure to live another day. We could add, how Darwinian of us. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I wrote that. <laughs> See, Darwin was this guy who believed in um, survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. And the Lord does not follow Darwin's rules. His prejudices. Perhaps our overcoming of vices and habits will have less to do with our strength to win over them, but rather ride shotgun and surrender to the Lordship of Christ Jesus. 
What if we don't have to shout others into submission of our will, but instead we concerned our need to be right by praying God's will be done in every circumstance? White-knuckled discipline produces strong muscles, but it also puffs us up in pride. God wants to do everything needed to give you his abundant life. And the dissonant comes in how we define what this good living actually is. So the Lord of this world will tell you it's one thing, but the Lord of creation will tell you something else. Only one of them can be right. Which one do you believe? And so we asked the Holy Spirit to reveal that truth to us. This was, this was my prayer this morning. God, would you just come and do something profoundly unique in our experience this morning that would let us know that you were here today? I've already mentioned that sometimes the domestication of this message just makes it so familiar to us that we just don't see when God breaks through. I'm asking God to break through this morning. And the Holy Spirit can do so. Which, which truth do you believe? So when Peter replies to Jesus' question, who do you, you say that I am? Peter gives us an example of how to follow. He says, well, you are the Christ. And of course, Jesus says, well, my father has showed that to you. And we need more, we need to be more like people. We need to be more like people, more like Peter. He has an awful lot of peace. And, um, and know this, like Peter, and I'm finishing here. Um, people like Peter sometimes err. They make mistakes. They still do wrong things. Um, but in the long run, God does more good in their life than, than anything else. Yeah? Hmm. Okay. You want to pray? Man, it feels heavy in here. I blame Roach. I'm just saying. Um, Ryan, I blame. No, I don't know what it is. Can I ask the Lord real quick? Okay. I'll close with this word, I think, that might be from the Lord. Um, all right. <laughs> uh, welcome to Renaissance. I, um, I just want you to know, we're a church who believes in the gifts of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit still operates in power today. And, and all, all that to say is what I'm about to say next, I think is from the Lord. I think the Lord would say to many people in the room that you have um, latched onto a lie at some point in your life about who you are as a person and about what God can and wants to do in your life. And so when I said earlier that this place feels a little heavy, like immediately the Lord just brings that to my mind. It's like because so many of you are carrying around things that you weren't intended to carry around. And all that to say, I think in the moment when I pray for people, God wants to release you from that heaviness. And, and you, I love you, you don't have to fight it anymore. You can just receive it from God in a simple act of faith that God is leading you into in submission. I'm no longer gonna fight this, Lord. I'm letting you fight on my behalf. And so would you do me a favor? Just bow your heads real quick. I just wanna see a show of hands. How many people feel as if they've been um, 
When I said those words, when, it, when I said you've been lied to and you don't think God wants to do anything in your life and God cares about you in any way, that you are just gonna be who you are and there's nothing that can change and you know this is your lot, deal with it. If that's you, would you just like show me your hand real quick? You can put your hand down after you raise it up. I don't, anyone else? How many people are just carrying around this idea that, that this is who I am? I just have to wait till I die so I can change. Like my real hope is one day, someday in the future, in eternity, then it'll happen. Anyone else? All right, you can put your hand, heads back up. That's great. Let's pray. I see it. There's a lot of hands that went up and I'm gonna pray for us. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for exposing that lie. We, we pray oftentimes here, Lord, that when people come to church, that, that only truth would abound, that only light would, would, uh, would shine. There would be no room for darkness. In every corner of every room of every heart in this place, Lord, I pray the, the light of your son Jesus shine in and push back the lies that were told over them, maybe when they were children, Lord, that you would remove that lie right now. Maybe it was an old boss that said, you'll never amount to anything. Maybe it was a school teacher, school counselor. Maybe it was an ex-husband who says, this is why people leave you because you're an unworthy person. God, would you just take that lie and would you put, <laughs> place it into the pit of hell where it belongs? Jesus has not come give up his life willingly so that we could be stuck in that place to be overtaken and ruled by the enemy, the, the devil, the liar of all liars. So God, I pray that you would release your people in Jesus' name, that you give them wisdom in Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.